Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today's episode is probably the most requested one uh, in Holly's and my time on the show. For sure. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible we've said this about some other episode. And at this point, we're liars. <laughs> this time we mean it. It has far superseded anything else we might have said that about. So our first request for it actually became before we even started hosting the show. It was from a listener named Allison, and it was one of the last listener emails that Sarah answered before she passed the reins over to us and she copied us on her answer. Uh, since then... Just from our email that I still have lying around, we got requests from Mallory, Zoe, Jen, Erica, Ford, Aaron, Susie, and Jeanette. And there are many, 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 many other requests that have come in via via Facebook and Twitter and even Tumblr, but those are all way less searchable than, like, the archive email box. So, I finally am Holly, and in all capital letters said, okay, we're doing one on the Night Witches. And I think I said, yay! Yeah, we weren't avoiding them before. We were just, we just had other things going on. Well, and part of it too is that, you know, we try to avoid sort of cultural redundancy. So if they're being talked about a lot on other sites, yes. like they're getting play. And so, and there have been a few times in the last couple of years where they have sort of, there's suddenly been a lot of buzz about them. Uh, like when, when there have been deaths amongst the women that remain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those kind of pop up. So at that point, it seems extraneous for us to then add to the pile and like it's just going to get lost. But yeah, especially because our production timeline means that we are like two weeks behind that. So instead of feeling like here's this thing that's awesome to learn about, it's more like here we are just a little late to the party. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a little bit of background. On this, flying was actually a popular hobby in the Soviet Union in the years leading up to World War II. And at that point, uh, paramilitary flying clubs were training people to become pilots. There were about 150 of these clubs, and about a quarter of their members were actually women. This was in part because of Marina Raskova. She had become an idol to teenage girls and young women after she set a record for women's nonstop distance flying in 1938. And she was 26 at that time. Raskova had set this record along with two other women after flying a twin-engine plane about 6,000 kilometers, which is roughly 3,700 miles. And that was from Moscow to Komsomolsk on Amur, which is in the Russian Far East. During the flight, the plane started to ice over, and the three women started to jettison everything that they could in an effort to lighten their load and gain altitude. But it wasn't enough. They were going to crash. And so, finally, Raskova took a compass heading, she marked the destination on a map, and then she jettisoned herself. She bailed out and survived in the forest for 10 days before a hunter found her, and then she made her way back to Moscow, where she was greeted by a cheering throng of supporters. This attempt to set a record and Raskova's consequent disappearance got widespread coverage on the radio, and people were absolutely glued to it. All three of the women became heroes, and they became known as the Winged Sisters. They were all named heroes of the Soviet Union, but Raskova was particularly beloved. People often make comparisons uh, to the United States' love for Amelia Earhart when they talk about Raskova. So thanks to all this interest in flying... 
When Germany attacked the Soviet Union in 1941, there were lots and lots of Soviet pilots with lots and lots of airtime who all came to volunteer for service. And a lot of them were teenage girls and young women. Roughly a third of the trained Soviet pilots at this point were women. But when it came to combat, at first, all the female applicants were rejected and sent home. But that changed thanks to Marina Ruskova. It was uh, then Major Ruskova who put out the call for women to volunteer to become combat pilots. They would be placed into all-female regiments. Anyone interested was instructed to write directly to her. And she got about 2,000 volunteers, a pool of candidates that she personally sifted through, narrowed down, and she interviewed them herself. And it wasn't just the pilots they would need. Frequently, the mechanics and other support personnel in these regiments would be women as well. The volunteers traveled to Moscow from some of the most remote parts of the Soviet Union, starting in the fall of 1941. And after gathering in Moscow, they moved to an airfield at Engels to train. And they came with basically whatever they thought they were going to need for as long as they would be out there if they made the cut, because they had they were pretty sure that anybody who did make it in was not going to get to go home again before they left. Larissa Rasanova was one of the women who made it to the interview stage, and she had actually packed one of her favorite dolls before leaving home. But her mother saw it in her suitcase and said, darling, you can't take that with you to the war. You're 18 years old now. And I love that story. <laughs> I do, too. But I'm like, take the doll. It's fine. <laughs> Larissa Razanova and Adezhda Popova, who went by Nadia, were Raskova's first two recruits to be officially selected. When they started their official training in October of 1941, the female recruits formed the 122nd Composite Air Group. And eventually they would be sorted into three all-female regiments, which were the 586th Fighter Regiment, the 587th Bomber Regiment, and the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. Each of them had about 400 women, and most of them were between the ages of 17 and 26. And we're going to get into the details on these regiments and how they were trained. Uh, But first, should we have a little word from a sponsor? We should do that. Stupendous. So to return to the Night Witches, there have been a number of news articles about them that have circulated in recent years. A lot of them, as we alluded to at the top of the show, followed Nadia Popova's death in 2013. A lot of them imply that the entire Soviet military command saw these women recruits as a giant joke, and that's not really accurate. The Soviet military definitely was not prepared for a bunch of women training training for combat. They had never done that before at this kind of scale. And there were, of course, people who were opposed to the idea of women serving in combat all through the ranks. But a lot of the things that modern coverage reads as a huge insult to the women was just, it was really a byproduct of that being the first time that women, a large group of women, had been recruited into the armed forces in the Soviet Union. And the fact that this happened during wartime. So things were, by necessity, tight. So, for example, uh, there was no women's barracks at the airfield where they trained, so they had to be housed in a nearby school. And there were also no women's uniforms. They had to make do with men's uniforms. Uh, These were generally too big for them. Although, and I love this, since many of the women knew how to sew, they could alter those uniforms so that they fit more properly. Uh, The boots were much bigger issues since they couldn't be altered. The women would stuff the toes with magazine pages to kind of fill them out so their foot wasn't sliding around. Yeah, the the women who were the best at tailoring wound up with uniforms that really looked quite smart on them. 
I, I told Tracy as we were looking at pictures getting ready for this episode that I want to be the night witches for Halloween. So, yeah, and then <laughs> maybe we could get everybody to be night witches for Halloween. Yeah, and then I said, step one, start with men's uniforms. That's not a problem. Step two, I did that as a kid down. with my dad's uniform. <laughs> yep. So these recruits went through a highly compressed six-month training period. And although all of them knew how to fly already, most of them had absolutely no real military experience at all. So it really was not unusual for their classroom and flight training plus basic military instruction to stretch beyond 14 hours a day. They were definitely immersed in what was widely regarded as a world for men, which made it very important to many of them that they maintain their femininity. Many had brought one pretty outfit with them when they reported for training, and they decorated their planes with flowers. They dyed their silk underhelmets in really pretty colors, and they called one another by their first names, trying to remember to use surnames and official ranks when the men were about. But they kind of developed this more casual camaraderie amongst just the women. Uh, the women were assigned into their regiments in April of 1942, and from there they finished their training with the actual planes that they would be flying. So they had to get familiar with the controls and the handling of those specific aircraft. The 586th Fighting Regiment uh, flew Yakovlev Yak-1s, which were the best Soviet fighters in the first years of the war. Although the way they were constructed made it a little hard for the more petite women to both reach the pedals and handle the controls. Uh, They got used to it, though. They were all extremely adaptable. The fighter pilots also had to get used to working as a team while flying in airplanes by themselves. The Yak-1s were single-seat planes, unlike the bombers and the the planes that they have been training on. The 587th Day Bombing Regiment flew Polikarpov PE-2s, which were armored bombers with a bubble-protected machine gun station. In both cases, their actual aircraft were a complete departure from what they had been training on. Not so for the Night Witches. Their planes were Polikarpov PO-2s, originally known as U-2s, and these were the same planes they had already been training on. They were never actually meant to be bombers. These were slow-flying, wood-and-canvas biplanes with open cockpits that were mostly used for training and for crop dusting, and they were so slow that they could only fly missions to targets that were relatively nearby. Otherwise, they would waste way too much time getting there and getting back. So the planes had to be moved from one location to another during the day to give the women access to their targets at night. Because these were training planes that had been pressed into military service, they had complete sets of controls for both the front and back seats. They were retrofitted with bomb racks and a small machine gun at the rear seat. Those same news articles we referenced earlier will often say that the PO2s could only carry two bombs, but in fact, some of them could carry up to eight. So while there were three units, uh, our focus really here is on the Night Witches. So we're going to talk just about their time uh, in World War II for a little bit. Although they became more famous than either of the two women's regiments, they didn't really get off to the greatest start. All of these women were really capable pilots, but their military experience at this point was, frankly, pretty minimal. While flying to the front to report for duty, three fighters that had been tasked with escorting the Night Witches dived through their formation, and most of the women believed they were under attack by the Germans, and so they panicked and scattered. This was basically a test. And they did not pass it. Uh, they arrived safely at their destination, but most of the women hadn't seen the fighters coming or recognized them as Soviet planes. They panicked instead of maintaining their formation. 
When they were inspected the next morning, their commander told them that they were not ready for combat. So the Night Witches spent another two weeks in training. To make things worse, their first housing at the front was in a cow shed, which was not currently sheltering any cows, but it had done so recently enough that it smelled horrible, no matter how much they cleaned it. Once their command decided that they were, in fact, ready, the Night Witches finally flew their first combat mission on June 8th of 1942. The three most experienced crews of two women each were tasked with bombing the headquarters of a nearby German division. On that first mission, they employed a practice that... uh would earn them the nickname that we've used several times now. The PO2 is a really, really noisy aircraft. It makes a lot of popping noises as it flies. And these pops are accompanied by visible flame in the engine and the exhaust. And so it's extremely easy to hear and extremely easy to spot. So as the pilots approached their targets, they would cut their engines, glide the rest of the way, and drop their bombs in comparative stealth and silence. Apparently, the rush of air over the wings reminded the Germans of the sound of a witch flying on her broom. While that first mission was successful, sadly, two of the women, Luba Olkovskaya and Vera Tarasova, were killed in action after a navigational error steered them over a heavily defended part of the front and they were shot down. Recognizing that losing two of their own right literally at the very, very beginning of their time in combat was really threatening to shatter the rest of the regiment's morale and confidence, regimental commander Major Yevdokia Bershinskaya made a case to send the rest of the bombers out that night on a mission at once. They were given a relatively easy target, which was to bomb a railway junction and an artillery battery, and the rest of the remaining teams, having completed this mission, did return successfully. After that uneasy start, the Night Witch's confidence and skill really grew quite quickly. They flew multiple missions every night, flying out to the target, returning for more fuel and bombs, and then taking off again. A Night Witch plane took off on a bombing run every three minutes from sunset to sunrise. And this wasn't just about destroying German targets. It was also about disrupting the sleep of any German troops who were in the area and keeping them on it on edge. German troops on the ground could hear the night witches coming until they killed their engines. And the women would also fly in pairs with one of the planes leaving the engine on to serve as a decoy so that the other one could proceed in in more silence. So anywhere the night witches were active, the Germans on the ground were not getting any sleep. They were constantly being awakened, wondering if they were the target and then being kept on high alert the whole time. Purportedly, because of this, the Night Witches became so hated that any German who shot one down was automatically awarded the Iron Cross. I found lots of modern news sources of this, not so much historical sources, so take that with a grain of salt, but it's still a good story. And the Night Witches, uh, as you probably know if you have seen any of the coverage of them, became very, very good at their jobs. But what is sometimes not always talked about as much is that they also had their share of tragedy. And we are going to delve into that after we have another word from a sponsor. So to return to the Night Witch's later time in the war, eight months into their combat duty, many of the Night Witches had just become household names in the Soviet Union. They would get letters from home that would include clippings of news stories talking about their missions, as well as letters from friends and family who started to talk about their friends as heroes. General Markian Popov visited the 588th during the early winter of 1943. During that visit, he announced that the 588th Women's Night Bomber Regiment would be given the title 46th Tammen Guards Bomber Regiment. 
Guards units were elite units in the Soviet military. So with this reorganization, the Night Witches were not only in the same league with men, but they were in the same league with the most skilled and honored of the men. The Night Witches were the first regiment in their division and the first women's air regiment in all of the Soviet military to earn this honor. While they were doing really outstanding work in the air, it was still clear that they were not experienced when it came to general military protocol on the ground. Uh, After becoming a guards regiment, a major who was on a site visit managed to steal maps and signal rockets from the Night Witch's unguarded cockpits. He demanded that they demonstrate their marksmanship skills after this happened, and because that wasn't a skill that they were actually using that often, they didn't do very well. So once again, they were assigned to remedial military basics while also maintaining their night bombing schedule. And they also lost several of their own on one particularly catastrophic night. Uh, On July 31st of 1943, the German army tried a new tactic against the Night Witches. Up until that point, they had mostly relied on searchlights and flak cannons. As long as those pilots stayed out of the light, they were really difficult to hit. However, on that particular night, the Germans shot tracers after them and then deployed fighters. When the tracers hit the Night Witches' planes, they set the canvas coverings on fire. And from that point, there was virtually no hope for for escape for the women on board. The plane itself would just go up like kindling, and the women who were flying didn't have any parachutes. Some reports say that this was because they flew so low during their missions, but in reality, parachutes just weren't assigned to them until the following year. Larissa Rosnova, who we mentioned earlier as one of the first recruits, was one of the pilots flying that night. She was the fourth in line. And after watching in horror as the planes ahead of her caught fire and crashed, she decided that her only option was to go as low as possible in the hope of evading the Germans' night fighters. She flew so low that she spoke to her navigator in a whisper, afraid that the enemy troops on the ground would be able to hear her. And from a height of only a few hundred feet, she dropped her bombs. The explosion threw her plane up into the air, but she and her navigator made it back safely. The most experienced pilots who were out that night took similar maneuvers, but many of the less experienced ones who were there when the tracers came out were hit. And the rest of the regiment on the ground could see it all happening from their position. Eight women were killed in that one night. The Night Witches flew their last mission in May of 1945 against some of the last resisting German forces outside of Berlin. When they got the word of victory against Germany, they staged their own fireworks display with their flares and their signal rockets. In the end, the Night Witches were the only one of the three regiments formed from their original air group to remain entirely composed of women throughout the entire duration of the war. They were more highly decorated than either of the other two women's flying regiments. Twenty-three of them were named Heroes of the Soviet Union. Five of those awards came posthumously. They flew roughly 24,000 combat missions between May of 1942 and May of 1945. Thirty of their pilots died over the course of more than a thousand nights of combat. And although they did not really talk about it during the war, and it may not have been entirely conscious even on their parts, Many of the uh, women who had been part of the Night Witches talked in their later years about how one of the driving forces behind their time in combat was actually the chauvinism that they'd faced from some of the men in the military. They all pushed themselves really, really hard to prove that they could work on equal footing with men. And similarly, the other two women's regiments had a lot of successes in the war as well. 
The 587th Day Bombing Regiment was commanded by Major Marina Raskova until she was killed in action in 1943. And like the Night Witches, the Day Bombers were eventually named a Guards Regiment, which was a credit to their work. The 586 fighters mostly flew defensive missions. Lydia Litviak, the most famous of the fighter pilots, became known as the White Lily of Stalingrad, which uh, became the White Rose of Stalingrad in English reports. So you'll see it both ways. She earned the title of Flying Ace, and she shot down 12 German aircraft in a year of combat flying. This is also sometimes reported with a different number. You'll see it as 11, sometimes 13. She was eventually transferred to a men's regiment along with seven other women fighter pilots. She was shot down in the summer of 1943 and presumably killed. Because this was the focus of so many of the articles that have prompted people to ask us to talk about the Night Witches, we're going to wrap up with a little bit on Nadia Popova specifically. Popova flew 852 missions during her time with the Night Witches. On August 2nd of 1942, she was reported missing after her fuel tank had caught fire after it was hit by flak. After landing, she became separated from her navigator and witnessed a German airstrike against a convoy of Russian tanks. But the bombs missed the tanks, instead mostly hitting a nearby column of fleeing refugees. While trying to make her way back to her unit, Popova met Semyon Karlamov, an injured fighter pilot, and they tried to keep in touch during the war. He proposed the day the war was over, and the two married soon thereafter. Nearly every article about the Night Witches, and one of the books that I read, ends with a quote from Popova. In a 2013 interview, she said, I sometimes stare into the blackness and close my eyes. I still imagine myself as a young girl up there in my little bomber, and I ask myself, Nadia, how did you do it? I think many of us probably have that question. But even having done it, she still has that question. There are also so, so many more stories of heroism and tragedy among these women and among the two other Soviet women's flying regiments as well. And if you are interested in more of them, I recommend these two books, which I read for this uh, episode. One is Night Witches, The Untold Story of Soviet Women in Combat by Bruce Miles. And the other is A Dance with Death, Soviet Airwomen in World War II, which is compiled by Anne Noggle. That one includes a lot of personal stories by the women who were still surviving when she put the book together. And there's also a tabletop game in the works. Uh, this was funded through Kickstarter very successfully, bringing almost ten times as much as they asked for. Uh, and as of this recording, that project was in the proofing stage. I really love tabletop games. And so I, you I, do. I, I want it to be done, and I want it to be good. Yay! Do you also want to read some listener mail? I do, and it is on a completely different track than than this episode was. Uh, th- these are two different but related closely to one another emails about our recent episodes on Brown versus Board of Education. The first is from Chris, and he says, Hey, I just heard your Brown versus Board episodes. I lived for years in Clarendon County, South Carolina, and taught in a neighboring county. You didn't hear, don't recall, that's one of the school systems that was part of Brown versus Board. I can assure you that schools in the area are probably 95% de facto segregated. All but the tiniest towns in South Carolina have private schools, most of them from the mid-60s to early 70s to circumvent integration. The private schools are almost totally white, and the public schools are even more totally black. I taught about 125 students grades 6 through 10 at a public charter school, and only one was white. 
Because the tax base in these areas is so small, the public schools are also criminally underfunded, although the private private schools aren't much better. Segregation is alive and well in South Carolina's small-town schools. So that was from Chris. And then I also have one from Emily. And Emily says, I'm a senior in high school who ironically first learned of Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast from my AP U.S. history teacher. We had several assignments and extra credit opportunities involving listening to, summarizing, and expounding upon, expounding upon select episodes. Over the past year, I've become an avid listener and listening listen to the podcasts while working and driving. I drive to and from my father's house in Springfield, Tennessee, where my 15-year-old brother attends high school. The brief mention of lasting segregation in the recent The Road to Brown vs. Board episode brought to mind a current controversial issue in Robertson County, Tennessee. After a Department of Justice investigation, the federal government determined that Robertson County schools have yet to integrate. Robertson County NAACP president uh, is quoted as saying in a November 14, 2014 issue of the Tennessean, what the community needs to be concerned about is that 60 years after the Brown versus Board of Education decision and after the law was put into effect, they still haven't made any progress. The total community should be concerned about that. In order to avoid litigation by the U.S. Department of Justice and the cessation of federal funding to these schools, the county must rezone school districts. Several members of the community are up in arms over the rezoning because many feel that their children will be forced to go to an an inferior school than that of which they currently attend. Many of these complaints are from Greenbrier parents whose children attend the predominantly white schools who are rezoned to attend Springfield schools. Greenbrier High School's student population is 96% white, 2% Hispanic, and 1% black. Springfield High School is 64% white, 11% Hispanic, and 24% black. The state averages are 67% white, 7% Hispanic, and 23% black. East Robertson High School is 92% white. Joe Burns High School is 95% white. And White House Heritage High School is 92% white. All data from greatschools.org. This battle has been raging for months now over the rezoning. And the Robertson County Board of Education has agreed to adopt the elementary school attendance zones as proposed by the U.S. Department of Justice for the 2015-2016 academic year, with the promise to rezone middle and high school attendance zones for the 2016-2017 academic year. Much to the chagrin of some parents and to the delight of others, the minority student population should become more balanced across Robertson County schools. To still be fighting over segregation seems absurd to myself and many students my age who I've spoken with. Many students are willing and ready to change schools if necessary. However, the parents are at the root of the backlash. With every passing generation, more progress is made toward racial equality, and I and my peers are ready to usher in change, though some of the older generation may not be. I thought you would be interested in this current desegregation controversy as it applies to Brown versus Board and the local take on it. Thanks for the wonderful podcast, Emily. Those are both great letters in that they give uh, sort of a current perspective to, to segregation and how, as we talked about in those two episodes, it's still a big struggle in a lot of places. Uh, but they're not as good letters because of the same thing. Uh, the fact that, as you know, as we've talked about for a number of reasons, there are lots and lots of school systems that are still basically segregated. And we got uh, letters and Facebook statuses from other folks as well who talked about other parts of the United States that were outside of the South uh, and other racial and ethnic groups besides African African Americans and and uh, Caucasian students. So we may read more of those in future episodes. But for now, I wanted to start with these two um, because they were so immediate to what we had just talked about. 
Yeah, and there's uh, so much sort of hard data in them that's, I think sometimes it's hard for people that maybe are in a more integrated place to understand the level to which this is still a problem. So when you have those hard numbers, it's a little bit uh, clearer, like what really is still the case, even in 2015, in school systems, still figuring this out today. Yes. If you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store full of t-shirts and phone cases and awesome stuff. That's at MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com. If you'd like to learn a little more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website. That is HowStuffWorks.com. Put into the search bar, World War II Women, and you will find the article, Did Women Volunteer to Serve in World War II? And that's mostly from an American perspective. So you're getting kind of a look at what it uh, what it was like in other places besides the Soviet Union. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes for all of our episodes. We'll be sure to put in uh, the names of the books that I read off for more information on this. Uh, we also have um, all an archive of all of the episodes that there are of this show. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.